right. So we're kicking off a new series this morning uh, for the next four weeks. And uh, so uh, church checkup. And, and here's, uh, here's where we're going this morning. So uh, usually in January, you, you spend some time reflecting on things. January is the, usually the, the rhythm of most of our, our lives where we look at the past year and we look at the present year and that lies before us and we, we think about things we want to improve on or habits we want to include in our lives and habits we want to cut out of our lives. Uh, we think about uh, ways that, that goals that we, we, we set that we want to achieve and we kind of look at things in our, in our past that we think that was a waste of time. I mean, and then we look at this year and we go, I'm not going to do that this year or, you know, things like that. So we spend this time reflecting on and making some changes and then, and then at least for a month, what we do is we reorient our life in order to get those things accomplished. So we change our schedules, we allot time for certain things, uh, we change our eating habits, uh, we, we, we give time to the things that we're trying to accomplish or not accomplish, uh, we, we change the way we spend our money sometimes in those cases. And so we're used to this rhythm in January of, of assessing how are we doing. And so what I want to do in January is do the same thing, but from a church perspective. How are we doing? And so just like we would assess our, our lives and look at the past year and look at the future year and the things that we're doing, it, it's always good to assess and, and ask those questions. Is there things we want to stop doing? Is there things we want to start doing? Um, are, we, are we kind of operating in a way that demonstrates general health? And so, you know, once a year, you go to uh, the doctor, most of us, and that doctor, it, that, that, that appointment is usually going to do some things that, um, that they're just, they're just going to do some things to give them an idea of your general health, right? They're, they're going to do some things that, that give them data, and on that data, they can make some decisions about, are you healthy in this area? Are you not healthy in this area? And then here's what you need to do to get healthy in this area, right? And, and usually, if it's a new doctor, or if you haven't been in a while, the doctor is going to, going to do some things where it's going to give him or her a baseline, right? And they, they have this baseline of your health. It's this, of your health. It's just this uh, understanding of what would be normal for you. And so whatever they get from that baseline, it represents what's normal for you. And in some ways, it's a starting point for the doctor, that baseline becomes the beginning of how they're going to care for you and, and the representation of here's where we're starting. This is what we want to maintain. Here, You can't start anywhere besides this baseline. And so this morning, we're going to do the same thing as we're looking at, at church. We're going to look at a baseline this morning. Now, I am not going to preach with one glove on the whole time because I kind of feel like I... <laughs> <laughs> Here's where we're going this morning. All right. Is there any recovering from that? <laughs> Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to be. Um, now, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible there in front of you. Uh, if you're using the Bibles in the chairs, page 1111. Now, we actually looked at these verses back in June of 2016 as part of another series. And, and that series is called the Blueprint Series. We looked at these verses, and here's what we walked away uh, saying from those ver these verses back then. The church is a group of people built by Jesus, who belong to Jesus, and who bring the message of Jesus. That's what we said in 2016. As we look at this this morning, we're just going to simply look at it from this point. The church belongs to Jesus. 
So Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 13, I'm sorry, 16, verses 13 through 20 is where we'll be. So let's take a look. We'll read through it and then we'll come back through it. So when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They answered, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Then he instructed his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So if you've been around church for a while, perhaps you've heard these. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard this story at some point. They, maybe they sound familiar to you. Maybe they don't. Maybe this is the first time that you're hearing. And if that's the case, I'm excited for you this morning to get to hear this. And so here's, here's what we've got going on as we kind of walk through this this morning. Jesus is walking along with his, his, his disciples, his closest followers, and they come to a town called Caesarea Philippi. And, 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 and Caesarea Philippi is a town you need to know about. And so there, there's a few things you need to know about Caesarea Philippi. One, this is the Caesarea Philippi that was located just north of the, the Sea of Galilee, about 25, 30 miles north of Galilee. So it's not Caesarea by the sea, that's another town, and it's not Philippi, that's in modern-day Turkey. This is Caesarea Philippi, and it's just about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. If you think about a picture of, of the nation of Israel, you've got this one little pond-looking thing on a map, and then there's a river going down, and then the bigger pond-looking thing, Sea of Galilee at the north, and then the Dead Sea at the bottom. This is just 25 miles north. If you were to go on a map of Israel and just kind of put two fingers together, right above the Sea of Galilee, you'd probably find Caesarea Philippi there. That's where Jesus has taken his disciples. Now, Caesarea Philippi had a reputation. This was a Roman city. It was under Roman rule. And like many of the Roman cities at that time, they did not worship the one true God. They didn't worship the God of the Bible. They, they didn't worship the God of the Jews. They worshiped many gods. Now, Caesarea Philippi, though, had a particular God that they were fond of worshiping. Now, I do have a picture up here of this particular God, and his name was Pan. Now, this is a very appropriate picture for this morning, as opposed to some of the other pictures you might find if you Google Pan. Um, Pan is half goat, half man. And do you, do you remember in the Old Testament, Israel got in trouble a lot for worshiping this other God, and this other God was named Baal, B-A-A-L? All right, well, Baal was a Canaanite God, but Baal was a fertility God. Okay, well, there's several aspects to fertility, one of which is they believed Baal in the Old Testament brought the, the, the rains in season and out of season, so the, the non-Jewish people would worship Baal for, they, for them to get the rain in the season and out of season, but also there's fertility that would be bearing a child, right? And so there were ways of worshiping these gods that would be extremely crass and vile and disgusting. And that was true of Pan as well. So Pan is more of the Greek influence, but he's similar, similar to Baal in that he was considered the fertility god, right? So this is who they would worship in Caesarea Philippi and who they would go to to bring rain and to bring fertility. And of course, the way they would worship him would be in ways that might be considered crass and inappropriate and very sensual. And it involved animals, but not just sacrifices. Okay, so this is Pan. It's a very vile place. 
a disgusting place. Right? And it had a reputation of being like the red light district. And so you can imagine as Jesus and his disciples are heading to this place, Caesarea Philippi, what the disciples may have been thinking. Surely not. Jesus is not going to take us into that city. No, he's not going to take us into this, this vile location. Surely not Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the, 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 the one that, that we've been following all these years. Surely he knows what it's going to do to the reputation of good Jewish, clean Jewish people. But yet that is exactly where Jesus was taking them to Caesarea Philippi. Well, we keep going. And while he's in Caesarea Philippi, he asked them a question. And this is typical of Jesus. Jesus would be walking around and he'd see something and he'd say, hey, you know, it's just like this horse that you're, well, you know, he never talks about a horse, but you know, he's just using an example. And he would take that horse and, and he would say, it's kind of like this. And, and then he would teach a lesson from the horse. Or he's watching farmers sow seeds and he says, you know, a farmer went out to sow seeds and then he starts teaching about fertile soil in the heart. Jesus did that. He would teach from whatever was around him. And that was a very common thing, a very normal thing. Thing. And so there's something else you need to know about Caesarea Philippi. There was this location in Caesarea Philippi, and that cave down there at the bottom left is a place where it's believed they would worship Pan, the god. One of the places they would gather to worship Pan and, and do the things they do to worship him, right? And, and so then you see above that, there's like this niche cut out in the, in the stone, the rock, and then there's these other ones in there, and they're like shelves. Well, on these shelves is where they would put these idols, these other gods. In fact, they were known as nymphs, Pan and the nymphs. Okay, and, and, uh, and so the, the, these people would come and they would either worship Pan and then maybe they would choose another deity as well, a nymph. So these nymphs were considered other deities and there was this rock wall filled with all these different nymphs and, and people would come and decide who are they going to worship, who is the god that they're going to choose to worship. So it's very appropriate, I think, that in Caesarea Philippi is where Jesus asked them the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? See, the Son of Man was a phrase that Jesus used oftentimes to refer to himself. It comes from the Old Testament, Daniel particularly, where Daniel the prophet talked about this one day where God was going to send this, this person who was going to be from God and was going to be God's king, and he called him the Son of Man. In fact, Daniel had a vision of this Son of Man. People, good Jewish people, were looking for this one. And of course, Jesus oftentimes referred to him as, as the Son of Man, himself as the Son of Man. So he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Right? Who, who is it that people say that the Son of Man is? And so as they're in this location, they start to give some answers. And so verse 14, they say, well, some say John the Baptist. Well, that was a reasonable answer because Herod, Herod Antipas, who, who John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, Herod was this, this ruler in the area, but Herod had entered into a, a relationship with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist called him out on that. And so ultimately, John the Baptist was put to death. He was beheaded by Herod Antipas. So Herod actually believed that Jesus, walking around doing the things that Jesus was doing, uh, the miracles, the signs and wonders, he believed that Jesus was actually John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt Herod. So there's some people that were saying John the Baptist. Others said Elijah. 
They've said Elijah. Elijah was one of the prophets in the Old Testament, first and second Kings. You can read about Elijah. And, and there's a reason that people would have thought that Jesus, the son of man, might be Elijah because another prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, talked about this one who was to come and he was going to come before uh, God's promised one, God's Messiah would come, before the Christ would come. And this person that would come, who would be the forerunner, would be like Elijah, the prophet. He would do things like Elijah. He, he would proclaim things like Elijah. And so some people thought that Jesus was that one, that the Son of Man was Elijah. So they throw that out. And they say in others, Jeremiah, which would have been another Old Testament prophet. So there's people who were saying, well, Jesus is, is the Son of Man. He's, he's another prophet in a long line of prophets from God or one of the other prophets. And so, so here's the thing. Just like in our day, people had their own ideas about who Jesus was. Just like in our own day, people spent time thinking about the identity of Jesus. And so like today, if, as people consider the identity of Jesus, who he is, there's many things that people might, might call Jesus. They might call him a good teacher. He, he, was a, he was a teacher like no other teacher. In fact, we can go to Jesus and learn about how to be a good teacher. Other people would say Jesus was a good moral example. We should model our lives after Jesus and his moral example. He really treated people, even the marginalized, really like we should strive to treat people and especially the marginalized today. Jesus was a great moral example. Other people would say Jesus was a prophet. In fact, they don't, they don't even have to be Christians and they can believe Jesus was a prophet. Muslims include Jesus in their list of prophets from God. The Mormons include Jesus in their list of prophets among, from God. Uh, maybe some people say, well, well Jesus was um, an angel. He was, a, he was an angel and, and he was the brother of Lucifer, another angel. That's from Mormonism. Or, or maybe they're just going to say that Jesus, he's the first person or the first being that God created, Jehovah Witnesses and many other cults, that Jesus was not God, but he was the first being that God created. There's, there's all kinds of views about who Jesus is. And you could spend your entire life considering all the different things that people think about Jesus, all the different things that people believe about Jesus, and you would be in good company in the things that you're considering because people think about Jesus. Just like in our day, they were doing the same thing. So Jesus puts that question to them. But then he goes on, verse 15. And he, and, he, and, he, and he takes a question where, where, whereas before it was kind of non-personal, who do people say that? That'd be like me saying, like, do you have a friend who commits sin? Like, do you, do you know somebody who drinks too much? Do you know somebody who does some things? And you'd be like, yeah, I have a friend, right? It's not personal, right? We were kind of detached, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. Instead, he goes, but who do you say that I am? So it's no longer just, well, who do people say they am? See, you can consider who Jesus is all day long and, and there's no commitment, there's, there's, no, there's no changing of your life. It's just, I'm kicking around thoughts. It's, it's just philosophy, it's worldview thinking. But when Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Now the disciples are having to wrestle with who they understand Jesus to be. Who do you say that I am. And before we look at Peter's response, that's a question we all at some point in our life have to consider. 
I mean, we can spend our life at a distance saying, well, here's what I think about God. I've read this person's book about what Jesus is. I've read this person's book. I've read this religious book from, from the Mormons. I've read this religious book from, from the Muslims. I've read the Buddhist view of things. And, and so here's kind of the conclusion that I've come to about who Jesus is. You can spend your whole life pursuing that, thinking about that. But at some point, you are going to have to consider for yourself, who do I say that Jesus is? And take it from just intellectual facts and opinions to what do I believe deep inside? And so Jesus asked them this question. Peter says in verse 16, now Peter, Peter's that disciple that, that tends to speak up before everyone else speaks up. Peter is that disciple who tends to put his foot in his mouth because he spoke a little too soon. Some of you understand that problem, right? And, and Peter's the one who oftentimes finds himself digging out of a hole. But this is one of those places where Peter gets it right. So Peter says in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, he says. Christ, that's the Greek word Christos. It's the same word that, was, that would translate the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. So Christ, Messiah, same thing, same person, just different languages. So what Peter is saying is you are the Messiah. Now the Messiah is, is this person that ever since Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, we know God was planning on bringing someone. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and God pronouncing his curses on humanity and, and on, on creation and then God saying, but there's gonna be a seed of the woman who's gonna come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. We knew that one day there's gonna be someone who's ultimately gonna win this battle that sin has now introduced into creation. We knew someone. And so all of the Old Testament then from there forward is starting to trace who that's gonna be. And so you keep reading Genesis and you think, well, maybe it's Noah. And God makes a covenant with Noah, but we find out it's not ultimately Noah. And then you keep going and you find out that there's all this chaos in Genesis 11 as the Tower of Babel's being bought and built. And out of that chaos, God calls this man named Abram and makes this covenant with Abram. And so you think, well, Abram's the guy now that God's going to work through. And God makes some significant promises to Abram. And, and you can't get away from those promises because now God continues to work through those. But Abram's not the guy, ultimately. And then you keep going and Moses shows up in the scene. You think Moses is that guy. But even Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, I'm not that guy. Instead, there's one coming like me. King David shows up on the scene. King David, the greatest king Israel has had. And, and God even makes a special kind of covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And you think David's the one. But even when God makes that covenant with David, we find out David's not ultimately the one. There's still one coming. And so all the Old Testament is leading us to the point where God is going to bring this one. And the Old Testament calls this person the Messiah. He's anointed by God. He's the promised one of God. He's called other things in the Old Testament, the servant of God, the son of man, the ancient of days. I mean, there's all kinds of titles, but Messiah is one of the more prominent ones. And so good Jewish people have been looking for the Messiah for centuries. In fact, Jewish people today who are not believers in Jesus are still holding out looking for who they think will be the Messiah. And so Peter says, as Jesus says, but who do you say they am? Peter says, you're that one. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one that all of the people of Israel, all of God's chosen people from the Old Testament, we've all been looking for you. You're that one. 
You're the one in whom God is going to fulfill all of his promises. You're the one in whom God is going to bless all the people of the earth, all the nations of the earth. You're that seed of Abraham that God talked about that we've all been looking for. You're that one. And he says, you're the son of the living God. Now, when you see the word son in, in the scriptures, don't necessarily think just biological. That's one meaning of the word son. But when God uses the word son to describe someone in a relationship to him, there's some significant meaning there that is not necessarily biological. But instead, a son is someone who represents the father, who shares the characteristics of their father. Um, in God's case, God had a unique relationship with the king of Israel that he started particularly with David in 2 Samuel 7, where he tells David, look, I'm going to always have a king from your family on the throne of David. And then I'm going to be like a father to him, and he's going to be like a son to me. And so we learn that, that God's relationship with the king of Israel is going to be like a father to a son. And the king of Israel is going to be a human representative that represents God's rule and reign on earth and demonstrates God's character to the people he rules over. And so we find out in the Old Testament in, in 2 Samuel 7 that God is always going to have a king from David's family on the throne. And he's going to be like a father to this king, and the king is going to be like a son to God. And Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And what Peter is saying is not only are you the Messiah, the promised one of God who's going to have all the covenants fulfilled in him, but you're also the promised king. You're the king that we've been looking for. Now, Peter is, is saying this in a time where there's no king on the throne in Israel. Instead, Romans are ruling over Israel. And, and the Jewish people are always looking for where's God going to bring someone and raise them up to overthrow the people. And Peter says, you're that one. You're the promised king of Israel. So who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's a question we all have to wrestle with, as, as I said, at some point. Because listen, at some point, whether, whether you come to this realization or not, that Jesus is God's promised one, that Jesus is God's Savior, in whom all of God's promises are fulfilled, that Jesus is the one who brings people into the family of God. And apart from him, there's no way to enter the family of God. Until you realize that Jesus is God's king, and he's the one that God has sent to rule in perfect righteousness and justice, until you realize that, you won't know God as God has made himself known. And one day, one day, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that there's going to be this day where Jesus returns and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And look, for some, it's going to be a joyous day. It's going to be a day of victory. As, as those who have already recognized that Jesus is God's Christ, is God's King, realize he has come back now and all things will be made right and the promises will be completely fulfilled. And then there's going to be others who it's going to be a day of stark reality as they realize this is God's king and I've spent my life rebelling against God's king. And their knees going to bow and their tongue's going to confess him as king, but it will be not joyous, not a day of victory for them. It will be a day of wrath and condemnation. Who do you say that 
I am? And that's a question we all have to wrestle with. Who do you say that Jesus is? And, and maybe you've got this figured out. Maybe you've wrestled with this question and you've wrestled it down to the ground and you've come to the understanding that Jesus is God's promise when he is the Christ, he is the son of God. Maybe you've come to that conclusion, but maybe others of you, that's a question you're considering. And maybe you've been considering it for a while. Maybe you haven't. And today now, you're starting to consider that. Who is Jesus? Not what people say, he, who he say they say he is, but who do I, who do I believe he is? What, what have I come to the conclusion of based on all the facts? So it's a question we all have to wrestle with. We go on in verse 17, and, and, and Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus answered him and says, you're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So, so Jesus responds and said, Simon, you're blessed. You've got God's divine favor on you. You're, you're, you're a recipient of God's divine grace. And he calls him Simon, son of Jonah. Now, if you were to go to John's gospel, and you're reading in John chapter 1, and you come to, I think it's verse 42, 43, somewhere around there. We're introduced to Peter, Simon Peter, in John's gospel. And in John's gospel, we're told that, we're told that Simon was the son of John. But here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, you're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. Did Jesus just get it wrong? No, of course not. Here's what I think Jesus is doing here. Jesus is always intentional in everything he says. And here's what I think Jesus is doing here. Remember a son, we just talked about son, a son represents the characteristics of their father. They, they have similarities, resemblance to their father. I think, I think Jesus is saying to, to Peter, after Peter has made this confession, you're blessed, Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, and I think what Jesus is saying is, you're acting like Jonah, the Old Testament prophet Jonah, and you're going to act like Jonah. You see, here, here's, what I, here's what I mean. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Jonah in the Old Testament was a prophet. A prophet was someone who re, uh, received direct revelation from God about who God is, about what God wanted to communicate to his people, and then the prophet communicated that which God revealed to the people. And, and, and Jesus is about to say to, to Peter, you didn't get this on your own. God, the Father, has given this to you, this realization that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the Lord God. He's receiving something from God, and he's confessing and communicating that, just like a prophet would, just like Jonah would. But here's the other thing about Jonah. So Jonah took this message to a group of people, and he took this message of God's mercy that was available to them, and God's grace if they would repent. So he takes this message of repentance to this group of people and he proclaims this message of repentance, turning back to God. And in response to the repentance, God would then give his divine favor, his divine grace, his divine mercy. And Peter is going to be used to communicate the message of repentance by which people will respond and receive God's grace and mercy. In fact, Acts chapter 2 Peter gets up and proclaims a sermon, a message about who Jesus is and calls people to repentance. And what happens? 3,000 people are responding, come into the kingdom. And then you read in Acts chapter 3, and, and Peter proclaims another message to the people in the temple, and, and the people respond with repentance. See, like Jonah, uh, Peter is going to be used by God to proclaim a message of repentance, and people will respond to that message just like in Jonah's case. And, and then another example of, of Jonah. Jonah specifically was told to go to who? 
the Ninevites, Assyrians, the enemies of Israel, non-Jewish people. And in Acts chapter 10, God is going to use Peter to go to Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, a non-Jewish person. And Peter is going to proclaim the message of repentance to these non-Jewish people for the first time. And they are going to respond in repentance and be brought into the kingdom. And just like Jonah, God is going to use Peter to bring non-Jewish people to repentance. You're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. He goes on and he says, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. See, the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter didn't come up with that on his own. Peter didn't consider all the facts and then reason his way through them and intellectually make a decision where he said, yep, this is true. Now, Peter, Peter could not have come to that conclusion on his own. The best that Peter could do is the best that any one of us could do on our own is that we can consider the facts and maybe we can intellectually agree with those facts. But Jesus says, you didn't get this on your own, Peter, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. No, instead, that was given to you by God the Father. See, the identity of Jesus is something that is spiritually discerned. It is something that God helps us to see. And apart from God helping us to see that, we will not reason our way to such a conclusion. We will not intellectually make our way to that conclusion. We can't on wisdom alone, human wisdom alone depending, we can't come to the conclusion that Jesus is the promised one of God who fulfills all the covenants and is the Savior. In fact, Paul takes that very issue up in 1 Corinthians where he's writing to these people, well-educated people, and he says to them in 1 Corinthians 1 that, that to, to those who are wise, so those who are living by wisdom, Christ is foolishness. Because how can God's promised one be this one who comes and does all these great things and claims to be innocent, but also claims to be God, which let's be honest, if anyone claims to be God, we think they're a lunatic. And there are a lot of people who show up claiming to be God. And Jesus was, was no different. In Jesus' day, a lot of people showing up claiming to be God claiming to be the Messiah. And here's Jesus in that long line of people. And so human wisdom alone would come to the conclusion, well, it's foolishness because he ultimately died on the cross. Why would an innocent man willingly die? That's so ridiculous. It's foolishness, Paul says. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God is the one who helps remove the blinders. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 talks about that the people uh, who, are, who are not believing in Jesus, they're blinded by the prince of this world, Satan. He has blinders on us. Before you trusted in Christ, if you trusted in Christ, before that, you were blind to who he was. And apart from God's grace and his revealing to you in his grace who Jesus was, you didn't come to that conclusion on your own. God was working on you and he was removing blinders so that at the moment you trusted in Christ, he was enabling you by his grace to see that and to understand it for the first time in a way you've never understood it before. And apart from God removing those blinders that Satan has up on every person, 
We wouldn't have come to that conclusion. Simon, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The truth about who Jesus is is something that God gives us understanding about. And apart from God, we cannot know who Jesus truly is. Apart from God's grace, we cannot know who Jesus is. Verse 18 and he says, I, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So lots of discussion on, on, on this verse. I've, I put up two Greek words in there so you can see what I think Jesus is doing. So Peter's name means rock. In the Greek, that, that word is Petros. And so Jesus says, you're Peter, you're Petros. And upon this rock, and he, the Greek word there is Petra. You see how close they are? Jesus is clearly making a word play here. He's taking Peter's name, which means rock, Petros, and he's making a word play by saying upon this rock, Petra, and he's going to draw some conclusions. And so here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying to Peter, Peter, your, your name means rock. Now, now Petros means like little stone or pebble or something like that. And then he said, on this rock, Petra, and that word Petra was more used of larger slabs of stone, like that you would use for a foundation, or it was like large cliffs. And remember, Caesarea Philippi, perhaps they've walked by this large cliff where all those niches were, were carved into it. And he's saying to Peter, you're Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, this larger foundation, I'm going to build my church. He's making a word play. And I think he's talking about Peter. I think he's saying, Peter, you're the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. Now, some of you are squirming because you know where that lead has led some people. And, and the Catholic Church has had come to that same conclusion, but then what they do with that is they say, Peter is the first pope. And then Peter had a line of successors. And so the, each pope that comes after Peter has been uh, the, the one who, who's come back from the line of Peter. And they, they trace their pope's lineage from Peter. And so Protestants, evangelicals, have swung the complete opposite direction out of fear like we tend to do. And so what we've said is, well, it can't mean that because that's the conclusion the Catholic Church came to. And so there have been other suggestions, and they're good suggestions, and they might be viable suggestions. But I think it makes more sense to understand that, that Jesus is saying, you're Petros, you're Peter. And upon this rock, Petra, I'm going to build my church. And Peter has just made this confession. And he's saying to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. I'm going to start with you. And you're going to initiate something that's never been initiated before. And it doesn't have to lead to a conclusion that Peter's a pope and that there's a successor coming after him because there's nothing in the verses that would suggest that. That's, that's people coming with some already drawn conclusions and some ways they want to do things and then reading that into the scriptures. And we do that with anything. You can make the Bible support absolutely anything you want. There's a verse that you can twist, use out of context, and throw it out there. In fact, there's a pastor in Dallas who did it this week. You can make the Bible say anything you want and support anything you want. And I think that's what they did, but I don't think we have to let the pendulum swing so far the other direction. I think it makes most sense that Jesus is saying, Peter, upon you, I'm going to build my church. Because guess what? Acts chapter 2, who gave the sermon in the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes? Peter. And the people that responded, 3,000 people, first time that God is doing this work through his church. Who did God do it through? Peter. In Acts chapter 3, the sermon, Peter. Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritans were brought in, who was it that, that went and laid hands on and then the Spirit fell upon the Samaritans? Peter. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and the Gentiles, and, and he goes and preaches this message, and who is it that God uses to bring these Gentiles into the kingdom? Peter. 
Peter, you're, you're, you're Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Is because you've got God's divine favor on you and you've come to this conclusion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work through you to start something new. And it didn't mean it was limited to Peter because you certainly see other apostles doing things too. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'll build my church. Now, the church is, is not a building. Absolutely not a building. The church is a group of people. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my group of people, this called out group of people who, who, will, who will believe in me and will be brought into the kingdom through me. I'm going to build that group of people on you, Peter. You're going to be the one that I'm going to use to start this off. He goes on and he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So gates of Hades. So um, Pan, goat man, right? Had a place of worship in, in Caesarea Philippi. There was also this spot in Caesarea Philippi where the Jordan River, one of the, the sources of the Jordan River was in Caesarea Philippi. So there would have been this, this large body of water there that, that was feeding them the Jordan River. Well, they believed that Pan lived underneath that that, that body of water. And that was a common belief that some gods lived underneath the water, underneath the earth, and other gods lived on high mountains or in the sky. Underneath the body of water. Now, to get to where Pan would have been or to get to Hades, where is the place of the dead, you would have to, they believe you would have to go through a gate, a portal to enter into that realm. So the gate of Hades then was the place of the dead and the gate was the portal or the, the, the entry point through which you would go to get to the place of the dead. And most people believe it was at the bottom of, of that, that place. And so Jesus says, Peter, you're a rock and on you I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so now when you think about gate, you think castles have gates, forts have gates, your house has a fence and a gate. And most of the time we think about gates and we think defense. It keeps people out. It keeps people from coming in and attacking. And so we take a defensive posture and we close ourselves in behind our gates, right? But there's another purpose behind a gate. And it was to keep people in. It wasn't just to keep people out. Sometimes gates were to keep people and think about your fences at your house. When we go looking at houses and when we moved here and we were looking at a house, we were looking for a house that also had a fence. And if it didn't have a fence, we were going to want to put in a fence. Why? Yes, to keep people out, although that didn't work for my cross-street neighbor, but then to keep my kids in or keep your pets in, keep your cows in, right? We use gates and fences to keep things in. And I think that might be more the idea that Jesus has when he says, not even the gate of Hades will overcome it. In other words, not even death can overcome my church. See, people die. Jesus is about to die. In fact, in verse 21, he's going to start talking about his death. And Matthew's going to tell us from that point on, Jesus began to talk about how he must go to Jerusalem and die. And I think he's telling his, his, his followers, look, I will build my church, my called out group of people, and not even the gates of death are going to keep me in. Because he's not going to stay dead. He's coming back to life, and he knows that. And listen, if Jesus is going to build a called-out group of people, this church, and not even the gates of Hades can overcome it, he's saying not even death will overcome me building my church. And so as you think about the process that the church has gone through being built, people were martyred. People are still being martyred. People die. And Jesus is saying, my, my program in the church, this group of people, it's not going to end with death. See, death was the result of sin. And if sin wins and death is the final victor, then what are we doing here? But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And not even the gate of Hades will keep 
them in. Death will not even hold the people who are in my church. So from the very beginning, as Jesus has built his church, the church was not meant to be walled in a gate in a defensive posture, just bracing against the attacks until Jesus comes back. Instead, no, the gates of Hades weren't to keep us in. We are people who are meant to go out because we can't be kept in. And Jesus says, not even the gates of Hades will prevail. We're going we're gonna to just fly through these next two verses. We could spend an entire, an entire um, sermon on these verses. But verse 19 20, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Then he instructed his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This language, bounding and loosing, what it has to do with is, is permitting or forbidding having the authority to permit or to forbid, to allow access to or to prevent access to. And what Jesus is doing in this case, in Matthew 16, is he's saying to Peter, I'm going to give you authority, keys to the kingdom, and you're going to have the authority to, to give access to the kingdom or to forbid access to the kingdom. And here's how that played out. Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people respond. They come into the kingdom of God. All throughout Acts, as Peter is used by God, people come into the kingdom of God as God works through Peter. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. But then in Acts chapter 8, I think it's verse 20 to 23, there's Simon the sorcerer who, who sees Peter doing this wonderful stuff by the power of the Spirit. He says, I want that. Let me pay you for that. And then Peter says to them, you will have none of this. Forbidding access. Right? Now, again, if you're scared about the way Catholics use this, it's not just limited to Peter in that later on in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus then extends that same binding and loosing authority to members of the church. Okay, but it's a different, of a different context. That's what I think Jesus is doing here. So the church belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. And I think as we wrap this up, for some of you this morning, the, the question you need to ask is, do I belong to Jesus? Do I belong to his church, his called out group of people? And, and just sitting here in these chairs today or week in, week out, does not mean you belong to Jesus and you belong to his church. You might belong, in a sense, to this local gathering, Houston Church. But if you have never trusted in Christ, you don't belong to Jesus. And you don't belong to his church. You see, if, you, if, if, if the church belongs to Jesus, and later Jesus would say, it's through me that you get access to the Father, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you can't belong to Jesus apart from going through him, believing in him, recognizing like Peter that you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Some of you today, maybe you've been thinking, I've been attending church for years, of course I belong to Jesus. But if you have never trusted in Christ, you don't belong to Jesus. And if there's even a doubt of that, go before the Lord today and ask him, God, show me, is this, is this true of me? Am I one of yours? Do you know me? Is my name written in the book of life? Or have I just been attending and going through the motions? I think for some of you, that's the question you asked this morning, is do I believe in Jesus, the one who God has sent to stand in my place and do what I cannot do, which is live a life that earns the acceptance of God? I can't do it. But Jesus did it. And he did it in my place. And then he stood and he took what I deserve, the wrath of God for my sin. And he did that for me so that, that I would not remain under the wrath of God. Look, if you don't belong to Jesus, you are still under the wrath of God for your sin. But Jesus took the wrath of God for those who believe in him. So if you trust in Christ, then you're removed from the wrath of God. And maybe for some of you, that's you today.
others of you this morning, um, we've got to wrestle with this question. If the church belongs to Jesus, and if we, we really believe that, and if the church is Jesus' bride, and, and, and Jesus is the one who has purchased the church, and, and he's the one who builds the church, and, and, and he's the one who died for the church, and he's the one who's coming back for the church, if the church belongs to Jesus, and we have a clear understanding of that, are we living our lives in a way that reflects that clear understanding that the church belongs to Jesus? The church is not a building. We don't, we don't own the church. Jesus owns his church. You and I gave nothing for this church, this body of Christ. Jesus gave everything for it. So do we run the way we live our lives through that? The way we treat other people who, who belong to the body of Christ, who belong to Jesus, do we treat them like they uh, belong to Jesus, like they are part of his bride? Because listen, I mean, if you, if you disrespect my bride, you're going to get a response from me that's appropriate to that, 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 the way you treated her. And if that's true of me, how much more is that true of Jesus? And the way sometimes we treat other people in the bride, we're going to answer for that. So do we run that through there? If we truly understand the church belongs to Jesus, the way we treat people, what about the way we make decisions in church? And, and, uh, and the way we lead the church? Do we run everything as if we belong to church? See, the church does not belong to leaders. Leaders are entrusted with what belongs to Jesus. Do we run things through that? What about the way we do things? The programs that we have, the ministries that we have, the way we do those ministries, do we run it through that lens of it belongs to Jesus? Or do we say, this is what I want to do, this is what other churches are doing that's successful, God bless it. Oh, that God would curse it so that we would fail miserably when we try to pursue and do things in our own way, in our own understanding, for our own glory. Do we run that through? And what would it look like if more churches truly understood that the church belongs to Jesus and then ran everything through that? I think there'd be a lot of churches across the world, one, that wouldn't exist, or two, they would look completely different. And they would stop doing things that they're doing because they'd realize it's wasting their time. Or, or they, and they would start doing other things or they would tweak the way they're doing things so that it better aligned with Jesus' mission because after all, the church belongs to him. We should be doing his mission, but that's two weeks from now, right? So I think churches would look a lot different. <coughs> what would it look like if we, you, were to run it through the grid? What does it look like? If I understand that the church belongs to Jesus, how does that shape the way I do everything else in the name of Jesus? Here, in the community, I think it might look different in some ways. But what ways? So let's go before the Lord. My hope is built nothing less than Jesus' blood
open the eyes of those who have not seen Christ and all of his beauty and all of his glory and have not understood that, that the sending of Jesus to stand in the place of sinners is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of love of a God who is all-powerful and who, though, would be completely justified and never interceding on our behalf. Sinful people who have rebelled against God chose to and did what had to be done because not one of us could ever make our own way to Christ. I mean, to God, but through Christ, you've made that possible. God, you open eyes to see that and hearts to believe that. And God, would you show us what it looks like to be a, a group of people who, who don't try to run things that belong to Jesus, but instead surrender and seek his wisdom and his guidance. Lord Jesus, show us what it looks like to be your church in this location, in this community, in these towns that, that are around us. And, and show us what it would look, how, how it would look to, to, to live that out if we truly understood the church belongs to you. And let us not be people guilty of running an organization because the church is not just another organization, though so many operate like that. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be just a tax-exempt organization. It's not worth it. There's plenty of other tax-exempt organizations we can give to and spend time with. And we want to be your body, your called out group of people living for your purposes, not being kept in by the gates of Hades and the fear of death, but instead going out. Embolden us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. With that, we'll see you guys next week.